We're going to be wrapping up our journey through First uh, Peter this morning. Remember, we've been working through this letter uh, that Peter wrote. Uh, Peter, one of Jesus' authorized spokespersons, uh, that he wrote to churches in Asia Minor, which is in modern-day Turkey. Remember, they're suffering and they're struggling under persecution right now. Uh, what we're what we've uh, we've seen is it's it's mainly verbal taunts, uh, maligning, ridicule, uh, slander uh, against them, shaming them. Uh, but Peter is writing to prepare them, to encourage them now and to prepare them in the future that they would uh, stand firm in the grace of God, that they would know the grace that is theirs in Jesus and look and hope and rest and trust in him, uh, regardless of what lies ahead. Uh, Peter is writing those same things to, uh, to us as his people now as uh, we may be suffering persecution for following Christ to various extents, to varying degrees. Uh, but just as uh, Peter is writing to them, they are not aware of what lies in the future for them, which will be increased persecution. We don't know what lies in store for us. And so we must always be prepared, looking, hoping, resting in Jesus, standing firm in his grace that is ours. And so as we close up uh, this uh, letter together, uh, we'll see that Peter is going to uh, point us to uh, the importance of recognizing limits. First, we're going to see that it'll be important for us to recognize our own limits. And we'll see we need to recognize Satan's limits. And we'll see that we need to recognize suffering's limits. So, if you would, look with me here in chapter 5 of First Peter. Uh, we're going to begin in verse 6 and go all the way through the end of the, through the letter. Um, if you're following along in one of the black Bibles there in your seats, this is on page 1017. This is the word of God for us this morning. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you give us your word. We pray uh, that as your people who struggle to stand firm in your grace, may we know more of the depth of your grace and your mercy to us. May we see Christ, may we cling to him, and may we stand firm in him. Uh, Holy Spirit, use your word to do that this morning. Amen. A few years ago, uh, Admiral William McRaven, uh, was delivering the, the commencement address uh, to the University of Texas. He's a, uh, 
former Navy SEAL. And as he begins his, uh, his, uh, his speech, he, he's talking about his experience and his time in uh, Navy SEAL training in the Navy SEAL school. Some of the uh, rescue swimmers among us may uh, recognize some of this as sounding familiar. This is how he begins his, his speech. Every day during training, you were challenged with multiple physical events, long runs, long swims, obstacle courses, hours of calisthenics, something designed to test your mettle. Finally, in SEAL training, there's a bell, a brass bell, that hangs in the compound for all the students to see. All you have to do to quit, all you have to do to quit is ring the bell. Ring the bell, and you no longer have to wake up at 5 o'clock. Ring the bell, and you no longer have to do the runs, the obstacle course, the PT, and you no longer have to endure the hardships of training. All you have to do is ring the bell to get out. If you want to change the world, don't ever, ever ring the bell. You see, the end of being a Navy SEAL is ringing the bell. Of coming to your limits and recognizing and realizing, I can't do it. I don't have what it takes. It's understandable that in the context of, of being a Navy SEAL or a Coast Guard rescue swimmer, that you're trying to identify men and women who really in the context of what they're doing, don't have any limits, and they can take it. Ringing the bell is the end of being a Navy SEAL or a Coast Guard rescue swimmer. But the Christian life, the Christian life begins with ringing the bell. You start the Christian life by ringing the bell and saying, I recognize my limits I can't do this. I need someone else to do what I can't do. What may be a, a place of shame or dishonor to a seal, to a rescue swimmer, becomes the hallmark of being a Christian. You see, where Peter begins with us is that if we're going to stand firm in the grace of God in the midst of persecution, we must know our limits. We must ring the bell. Look at what he says. Look at verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. When you hear that, that language, mighty hand of God, what, what comes to your mind? Is it, is it the mighty thumb of God that is just pushing you down? trying to make your life hard and miserable. Maybe when you hear about the mighty hand of God, what comes to your mind is a backhand of a God who's just cruel, a father who just wants to let you know all that you've done wrong and bring it across your face. Maybe the hand of God is a, a scolding finger. You should have done better. You could have done better, and you haven't. How dare you call yourself one of my children when I said that? Is that the hand of God that Peter's talking about? No. The mighty hand of God is drawing on Old Testament language. 
Old Testament language that is describing a God of deliverance, a God of redemption, a God of salvation, who uses his mighty hand on behalf of his people to deliver and do for them what they cannot do themselves. The mighty hand of God is speaking about the mighty hand that God exercised on behalf of his people when they were enslaved in Egypt. And as they looked to him, as they called out to him, and as they hoped in him, his mighty hand came down on their behalf. And Peter says, do you realize what you can't do, your God can? Humble yourselves. Flee to him. Look to him. Not your own strength in the midst of the persecution, in the midst of the shame, in the midst of the taunts. Don't try to defend yourself. Don't try to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and say, I will endure and I will do what it takes trying to defend yourself. No, humble yourself. Trust and hope and rest in him. Notice what he can handle and what he can take. As Peter describes to us what what humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God looks like. In verse 7, casting all your anxieties on him. Every single anxiety. You see, sometimes the, the, the reason we, we're not humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God, sometimes it, it stems from our pride of thinking, I can do it. I don't need him. I'm strong enough in my own strength. Sometimes it comes from your pride. Sometimes it comes from false teaching. If you think the Christian life begins by grace through faith, but you live it out in your own strength. And Peter says, no. Your anxieties are a sign that you're trusting and relying in yourself. Humble yourselves. Turn from your pride. Look and hope in him. But also sometimes what the reason we don't humble ourselves under the, the, the mighty hand of our God is because we really question whether he cares for us. We doubt whether his love is for us. If it's good enough, We're good enough to receive it. Look what Peter says. Why should you cast your anxieties on him? Because he cares for you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that your God cares for you? Are you doubting it this morning because of what you did last night? Or what's on your mind right now? Of all your failures in the past? If you're doubting whether God cares for you, you have to look no farther than the cross. The mighty hand of God was demonstrated for you as people in that he took on flesh. He lived a life you couldn't live perfectly. He suffered and died the death we deserve, and he rose. God's love, his care is demonstrated for us that he would give his only son to suffer and die on our behalf. Do you believe that he loves you? That he cares for you? That his hand is mighty to save? And that this God in the proper time will exalt you. That's what Peter says. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. What this means is that as we come to realize our own limits of what we can't do and we recognize we have to ring the bell Peter's calling us to look to the one who can handle all of our anxieties. Cast them on him. You can't bear up under the burden of doing it. 
your anxiety is, is overflowing, your fears out of your, your mind and your heart, Peter says, look to the one who doesn't have a limit. Know your own limits and look to the God who can bear up under every single one of your anxieties and fears. You will never put anything on him that he cannot take. You have limits. I have limits. But our God doesn't. So, as Peter points us to the God who has no limits, as we recognize our own, that we're going to hope and rest in him, he also wants us to know and understand that Satan has limits. So we need to know his limits. There's this famous quote at the end of a movie called The Usual Suspects. Um, as they're speaking about uh, this terrorist named Kaiser Soso, that is sometimes referred to by various characters in the movie as the devil. Uh, the character at the end says that the, the greatest trick that the devil ever did was convincing people that he didn't exist. Peter says, I don't want you to fall underneath that trick. You need to know and you need to be aware that the devil does exist. Satan exists reality from the biblical worldview is not just what you can see and feel and sense. Reality is material, but it is also spiritual. And there's things going on in this world that we can't see and can't understand. And Peter says, Satan is real. And he is prowling around, seeking to destroy you. Look at what he says. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He is active. He is real. He is operating in this world and in your life. And Peter says, be sober-minded. Be alert. Be aware that he is not a myth. He is real and he is active and operating in this world. But notice, Peter doesn't want us to, to go off to the other extreme. One, one danger would be to believe that the, that the devil doesn't exist and to, to ignore him. The other danger would be to give him too much credit, too much power, to fail to recognize his limits. Notice, Peter points us to the limits that Satan, the evil one, has. Look in verse 9. This roaring lion is seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith. Resist him. Peter is saying that this evil lion that is prowling around seeking to devour you in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your persecution trying to convince you to turn from God, trying to, to use uh, his, his schemes just like he did with Adam and Eve, of bringing questions into their mind of God's goodness. Does he really care about you? If he really cared about you, you wouldn't be going through this suffering and these trials right now. What Adam and Eve failed to do, Peter is saying, we can do. We can 
resist the evil one. How? In Christ. Stand firm in your faith. Faith in yourself? No, we've already rung the bell. Faith in Jesus. Because in Jesus, Satan has been defeated. In Jesus, you and I have died to sin. In Jesus, we have died to the evil one. He no longer has power and dominion over us. Prior to coming to Christ, we could do nothing but continue to follow our enslavement to him and our sin. But Peter is saying now, through the work of Jesus, his power has been broken and you can resist him because of what Jesus has done. Because it's in Christ that we have a faithful shepherd, a faithful overseer who defends his people against the prowling lions. Remember, we saw that last week as we looked at what elders are supposed to model. But remember at the end of chapter 2, you were like straying sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Who is this shepherd? Jesus. Satan has limits. But guess what? This prowling lion who is seeking to devour and destroy you by luring and tempting you to abandon your shepherd, to abandon your protector, your defender, your king. Notice what Peter says. This shepherd, your king, has no limits. Satan's power has been destroyed. But look in verse 11. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. The shepherd that we have, King Jesus, our defender, our protector, has all power, all rule, all authority forever. Satan may be prowling around, but we need to stand firm, hoping, resting, trusting in Jesus, who has no limits. We can't do it on our own. We're not relying on ourselves. We're fleeing and we're running to Christ and we're calling out just as he called us to. And as we prayed to him this morning to guard us from the evil one, he answered those prayers. Let's recognize our limits. Let's recognize and know Satan's limits. Lastly, we need to know suffering's limits. We already saw and and talked a little bit about Satan's schemes of of, of calling into question God's goodness with Adam and Eve, calling into question God's goodness with you and me. But he's operating, uh, there's another uh, encounter uh, that, that Jesus actually had with Satan. And Satan's goal then was to to try to get Jesus to ring the bell, to get him to ring the bell in a different way. See, the pattern that we've seen through Scripture is it's suffering and then glory. It's following Christ and his, his suffering on our behalf, and then later we will experience glory that Christ has secured for us. But as Jesus was, had been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness, Satan comes to him and he's like, Jesus, there's a way to glory that circumvents the suffering. You can go around it. Just ring the bell. Instead of doing what God's called you to do, look, look to me. I can give you all of this and you can avoid it all. It's so much easier. 
Jesus. Didn't fall for those schemes. Do you realize that as we have seen, God is using these tests, these trials to purify his people, the persecution to purify his church. Satan is also active in the midst of those persecutions, and he's seeking to entice you to ring the bell, to avoid following and hoping in Jesus in the midst of suffering, recognizing that to live a Christ-like and cross-shaped life means resting and hoping in the suffering king who died for us, but who's also coming and bringing glory for us. Satan's like, hey, I can get you out of this suffering and this persecution. All you have to do is ring the bell. Quit resting in Jesus. That's why you're being persecuted. Because you're hoping in Christ in the midst of this world. God's told you from the beginning that Satan and his seed will be at enmity with the people of God. Just turn from God and all of the persecution will stop. Peter here wants us to recognize and know in the midst of our, of our uh, being overwhelmed in the midst of our persecution, when the shame, when the taunts, when the rejection get too much, maybe the physical pain gets too much, and you are hearing the tempting cry of the devouring lion saying, ring the bell, give up, don't hope in Jesus. Peter's saying, know that suffering has limits. Look in verse 9. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Yeah, these sufferings are great. They're expansive. Every single believer will experience them throughout the world. It seems like there's, there's, there's no limits to where the suffering stretches. But notice what Peter says. There is an end to it. It will not last forever. Look in verse 10. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Compared to the glory that God has in store for us, these sufferings are only lasting a little while. Notice what he says. Although the, the, the sufferings have a limit, notice what he says about God in the midst of this context. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, there is no limit to the grace that God has for his people. In the midst of your suffering, and what he has in store for you. Stand firm in the grace of God that he has, the God of all grace that he's extending to you, his people. Recognize the, the type of glory that awaits us, suffering and then glory, just like Christ experienced suffering and, and secured glory for his people. Suffering lasts a little while, but notice what he says. The eternal glory in Christ that he has for you. And it is this God who will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Peter is saying, look forward to the end of the story. Right now, it seems like the world is being dominated by God's enemies. In fact, he alludes to that in verse 13. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. Some think Peter's saying, he's using this, uh, this figurative language to talk about Rome. 
Maybe he is. Maybe he's just talking about the fact that right now the fullness of Christ's kingdom hasn't come on this earth. And still God's enemies rule and control and they're abusing God's people. But what are we waiting for? Our God to come. And he will. And his suffering will end. Listen, as Peter points us to the end of the story, listen how John tells us what the end is going to look like in Revelation chapter 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. God is going to bring an end to it all. Suffering has limits. Because the God of no limits will bring an end to it. Fulfilling his promises that have been secured in Jesus, he will bring an end to all of your suffering and mine when Christ returns. But we wait. We wait. Standing firm in the grace of God that is ours in Christ. How do we do that? We recognize our limits. We ring the bell and flee to Jesus. We recognize Satan's limits. That Jesus, who has all dominion and power, has defeated our enemy. And he is the powerful and mighty one. And we recognize suffering's limits. That Jesus has and will bring an end to it when he returns for you, his people. This is the good news of the gospel. This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it and cling and hope only in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the gospel is true. We thank you that we are reading uh, the very word of God to your people. Show us more and more the depth of your grace. Show us more and more uh, the truths of the scriptures that we may see how mighty and sufficient Jesus is. You, our God of all grace. You, uh, the one who has eternal glory. You, the one who has all dominion and all power. Uh, we thank you that you have done all and given all for us, your sheep. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.